The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report is out now. Search ey.com slash ie slash CEO and discover the key topics on the minds of Ireland's leading CEOs. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Are we on the cusp of a housing bubble? The European Commission said no this week. Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times will give me his view in a few moments. And later in the show, Joe Brennan will join me from Davos in Switzerland, where the World Economic Forum has been in full flow since Monday. First to the economy, the European Commission issued an in-depth review of Ireland this week, which among other things said the risk of a housing bubble was limited. Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times joins me now to consider this view from the Commission and to assess what might happen with interest rates in the months ahead. Now, Cliff Taylor, uh, the European Commission did an in-depth review of the Irish economy uh, recently because they had some concerns uh, during COVID of the debt build-up uh, that was taking place um, to, to fund the various supports throughout the economy. But there was some good news because uh, they've kind of given us a clean bill of health of sorts. And they've also determined that we're not in housing bubble territory, in spite of the fact that um, prices seem to be rising on an annual basis each month by a healthy double-digit figure of sort of 14, 15, 16% around that kind of level. What did you make of that? Yeah, it was interesting, all right. I mean, on the overall position, uh, we all know that we borrowed a heck of a lot of money during COVID to fund the supports uh, for the economy, for businesses, for, for, for individuals. The good news, of course, was that we borrowed it at zero interest rates or, or in some cases minus interest rates. So that's not free money because we've got to repay it or more likely refinance it at some stage in the future. Uh, so it is on our national books and it is a factor in terms of flexibility in the years ahead. But uh, not having to pay an interest bill, bill on, on the new borrowings is, was, was a huge, a huge, a huge bonus. And as you say, the European Commission broadly uh, gives a kind of a broad uh, clean bill of health to the, to, to the national finances f- for that reason. Uh, you know, while, while pointing out that the level of debt is, 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 is high now. The housing thing is interesting. There's been a massive turnaround in household finances in Ireland over the, over the last 10 years, over, over the, since the crisis. And it really is a case, I think, uh, for people of, of, of once bitten, uh, twice shy, if you like. Uh, so whenever people have had extra cash, in the meantime, they've paid down debt. So the amount of debt paid down by Irish households over the past decade has far exceeded the amount taking it, taken out in new loans. So house, household finances are in a much better place than they were uh, when the housing bubble burst. The high prices last time round were driven by driven by borrowings, driven by the famous hundred percent mortgages, uh, six seven times income, whatever, uh, and we're in a different position now uh, due to that household caution, and also of course due to the macro potential rules introduced by the central bank to kind of stop yeah. to stop the same thing happening again, uh, limiting the amount people could borrow in relation to their income in relation to the uh, to the value of their house. So the EU looked at this and and basically concluded that. Uh, there isn't a credit bubble in Ireland, number one. And number two, house prices are not hugely overvalued looking at the state of the economy. So there are economic models to look at that. And interestingly, the ESRI have come to similar conclusions over the last year or so in relation to the Irish housing market. So if you look at the ESRI research, and I expect the Commission are operating on, on a somewhat similar model, if you look back at 2008, 2007, there's a huge gap between where house prices should be in relation to the economy and where they were. So, in hindsight, a bubble ready to burst. 
now that same gap doesn't seem to appear. House mm. prices seem to be aligned. Yet we're in a position where people can't afford to buy. So that does seem how do you square a bit counterintuitive. Yeah, how do you square that circle? Because the uh, Banking Federation um, this week had some statistics out showing that um, people need to have incomes of around €77,000 um, to be able to, to buy a house. I mean, we're, we're talking really about first-time buyers, aren't we, yeah. uh, to buy a house. We know that supply is constrained uh, and that the number of homes available on websites, My Home Daft, Take Your Pick, um, is pretty much at a, at a record low compared to you know when they first started calculating these things. And we know, too, that the number of a million euro plus properties for sale on the market, particularly in Dublin, uh, is is also um, at a at a record high. So it's really, I mean, it's really difficult to afford yeah. a home yeah, of a million yeah. plus. So you you would need to have an awful lot of uh, an awful lot of equity. But even for a first time buyer to have that income or combined income of nearly eighty thousand euro, it's asking an awful lot, isn't it? It is, yeah. And uh, I mean, just because there's some economic model showing that house prices aren't overvalued in a theoretical sense doesn't mean that we're in a satisfactory situation. Far from it. So, you know, I think you you square the circle in two ways, really. One is, as you said, the huge shortage of supply on the market. So a massive shortage of secondhand supply coming on the market and an undersupply of new houses as well. 20,000, I think, came were were completed last year. The target is 33. That's what the government said is needed. Some people say it's more than that. But whatever way you count the numbers, there's a huge shortage of supply in the new new home market and in the second home market. So that's, uh, that's a big problem. The other issue, I think, is that there are people who can afford current prices. And there are probably enough people who can afford current prices to to, to keep those prices up, if you know what I mean, because there are so few houses on the market. So, I mean, we've long spoken about the the dual nature of the Irish economy. And interestingly, it is something that the uh, European um, Commission point out in their their latest report. They point out that if you look at the tech sector, the fast-growing multinational sectors of the economy uh, output there went up by 20% uh, in 2021, whereas in the domestic economy fell by 8.7%. So you have people working in those sectors, earning very significant wages, uh, who can afford the, the small number of houses that are coming on the market. So it, it is kind of a false market in a way. And I suppose for that reason, it's vulnerable. It's, it's not vulnerable in the way it was in 2008, when there was overborrowing and, and kind of wide. Um, a lot of the population had borrowed way too much and were buying second homes and were buying homes abroad and all the stories we know about and that we've been told about and that led to such a horrible crash and such financial pain for a lot of people. But it is vulnerable to to an economic setback uh, because if the if the higher wage people start to draw in their horns or start to get paid less or if there's few of them around. And we've seen, you know, a few little few little things in the multinational sector over the last few weeks. Uh, well, we have. We, I mean, we know about the, the issue around data centres now and it, yeah. it doesn't look as if we're going to get any more data centres in the short term because of the supply issues that are at play and, and uh, the view of the regulator. But um, Intel's a senior executive at Intel was talking yeah. to Joe Brennan uh, at Davos um, and Intel has some concerns about the soaring price of energy in this country yeah. but also some other uh, infrastructure issues about uh, essential services, water and so forth um, being available to sites. And then we had Martin Shanahan last week uh, giving a, a speech uh, in in the West, in the Midwest and talking about how multinationals were uh, expressing some concerns about uh, housing issues. Mm. Um, and I suppose people being able to rent as well as uh, as buy, probably more so rent. 
then buy. Um, but he was saying it's not a deal breaker for for the minute, but it is definitely a bit of a constraint. So, and the multinational sector, let's face it, it's hugely important yeah. to this country, isn't it? It is kept the show on the road during the pandemic. It did, and kept the tax show on the road during the pandemic, which was which was hugely important. And we uh, had Apple there. We we had figures for Apple showing that they paid eight and a half billion yeah, in corporation yeah. tax last year. Yeah, extraordinary numbers. Kept the corporation tax show on the road, and also to a large extent kept the income tax. Uh, show on the road because again, if you look at the the EU Commission report, uh, they point out that a third of the employees in Ireland pay no income tax uh, because allowances and credits mean uh, that they they're not in the income tax net. Because they're on low pay, essentially. Exactly. Uh, so it's a lot of the people who are working in the multinational sector who are, and the better paid jobs in the economy and the jobs that are spin off from the multinational sector in accountancy law and all the sectors we know about professional services are paying a lot of the income tax as well. Uh, so it's not only the corporation tax, it's, it's, it's a wider kind of economic, uh, it's a wider ec- economic benefit, if you like, uh, for, 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 for tax collection in Ireland. So yeah, the health of the multinationals is a really crucial, crucial issue for Ireland. And there are issues there about high cost Ireland. And if, if you talk to people who deal with these companies, they say, well, look, these companies are dealing with higher energy costs across Europe, across the world now. And they're dealing with wage pressures and shortages of employees across the world now as well. The key issue is that Ireland doesn't get out of line in terms of those of those things. And, and, and there are, I suppose, some concerns there. We're already a very high-cost country, uh, the second or third highest-cost country for consumer goods, really expensive country for, for renting uh, and have real problems on rental supply and also a lot of looming problems in the energy area. Now, a lot of European countries have energy problems as well, different ones depending on where they are, but there's no doubt that energy is expensive here uh, and there's no doubt also that the supply of energy is based on a, a fairly narrow base, uh, particularly in areas like gas. So I, I think they're the they're the issues that are the ones of concern, if you like, for, for, for the multinational sector here over the next three or four years. We've had a lot of good news from the sector, including in the last few months. I mean, Apple are expanding again in Cork. We don't know if there's going to be jobs associated with that, but it's well, hard, to, hard to believe there won't be. They're not, they're not going to build a new office block exactly. for 1,300 people and exactly. not yeah. populated. Uh, and, and that's you know a huge issue, huge benefit to the country but and also to to Cork as a city uh, in terms of providing jobs. Merck had a big announcement, 440 million euro investment yeah. in Cork and new facilities. And well. even, you know, the people who are being laid off at the moment in the current jobs market, you would think uh, that there are plenty of jobs around f- for those people and that, you know, it, yeah. it shouldn't, as of now, an lead to an increase in unemployment. An interesting one for you, Cliff. Maybe you can answer this. But we're told that pretty Never much... Never when you say that. <laughs> pretty much every sector of the economy is telling us that there's a staff shortage. Yeah. That they have real issues attracting and retaining staff, particularly in, in hospitality, yeah. uh, etc. And yet the unemployment uh, rate is below 5%, which is where it was uh, pre-pandemic. So if all of these pe- people are shunning hospitality and shunning a whole bunch of other industries, and um, whereas, you know, compared to pre-pandemic and they're not on the live register, what are they doing? Yeah, I, I, this is this is a mystery and it's one that a lot of people in the hospitality sector are talking about. It does seem that, and other sectors as well, it does seem that a few things happened um, during the pandemic to change, to change people's behaviour, if you like. Uh, one is that 
I, th- I think people reassessed the jobs they were in uh, and, and the hours they worked uh, and what they were paid. And one of the problems facing the hospitality sector and the lower paid sectors is that people have traded up, if you like, that they've gone up to, to, to better paid jobs and better paid sectors with with better hours. Now, some in some cases, people have made trade-offs there. Uh, maybe they're earning the same amount of money but working less time. But, but whatever, uh, there, there are fewer people seem to be available to work in the in that lower paid sectors at the moment. Also, there was uh, clearly a large movement of people back to non-nationals, back back to their uh, back to their home market, if you like, or back to their home country during the pandemic. And I think those people have been have been slow to uh, come back. In some cases, uh, although that's starting to happen now, uh, and some people just seem to have decided to um, to drop out of the job market, as you say, um, not necessarily to go on, on on unemployment, but just reassess their lives, reassess the way they lived, uh, decided they could manage without working three days a week or two days a week in the restaurant, local restaurant or, or, or whatever at the weekend, yeah. which has left, if you talk to people running restaurants, um, they're relying on, on, on youngsters, transition year students. Yeah, um, you can see that very definitely. They're in facing huge wage pressures. Uh, and it does seem it does seem kind of uh, counterintuitive to use that word again that the sector having gone through one of the worst hits that it's ever taken and been closed for a long period of time that it's now scrambling for staff. Yeah, um, sure. Um, a couple of other quick things. Uh, we're all wondering what the uh, European Central Bank is going to do in in July in terms of interest rates. We're pretty certain they're going to increase them, but is yeah. it going to be a, a quarter percentage point increase or a half percent? Uh, increase. There's a bit of shadow boxing going on, yes, it would yeah. seem, between Christine Lagarde, the president of the ECB, and some of the central bankers uh, around the member states. And we've had some of that in Davos this week. Yeah, it's quite entertaining to, uh, to to look at it, actually, and to watch it and to try and speculate on what might be going on behind the scenes. So we've had uh, Robert Holzmann, who's the Austrian central bank governor, who's one of the hawkish, in other words, one of the most... Uh, fancies increasing interest rates more quickly than, than than the rest of them would. And he's come out a couple of times and said, look, he thinks there should be a half point increase in, uh, in in July. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. And I think I would suspect that he knows that's not going to happen either unless the figures go completely off the rails in the meantime. I don't think they will. But he is probably trying to box his colleagues into a position where there is an increase in of July some of some sort and another increase in September. I think that's the game that's going on. And Christine Lagarde has kind of come out over the last week and more or less spoken in the same direction as well. So she's her language she used is that she would expect rates to be in positive territory by the autumn, something like that. So Just remind us what the rate yeah, is sure. at the so, moment. So the rate that's debated is the deposit rate, which is the rate the ECB pays banks when they leave money there overnight, which is now minus 0.5%. So if we go half percent, we're at par. Exactly, we're at par, exactly. So it looks like, you know, I think at this stage, you're probably looking at a quarter point in July and a quarter point in September. That brings it to zero. There's mumblings about it being in positive territory by the end of the year. So another increase maybe before the end of the year. The question then is, what is happening to the European economy in the autumn as this process continues, if you like? Um, There are kind of some warning signs from um, confidence indicators uh, from uh, from businesses and also from consumers. There's a lot of nervousness around, obviously, in the fall of the war. Uh, and there's nervousness about things like gas supply coming into next winter and energy prices. So are they going to lead to a recession in Europe? Is there going to be a, a Eurozone recession or, or a really sharp uh, fall off in growth? Nobody knows, but there is a risk and that 
you know, what is that going to mean for the ECB's policy and for inflation later this year? It's difficult for them. Uh, there may not be a right answer in terms of what policy you pursue to try to keep inflation down without damaging economic growth. And of course, remember, while the Federal Reserve Board in the US is mandated with both controlling inflation and maintaining a healthy economy, the sole focus of the ECB in Europe is keeping inflation down. And I think Mr. Hussman and his German colleague on the ECB board and some of the uh, some of the more hawkish uh, Central Council members from the ECB, uh, ECB's own executive will be pressing that home in the weeks ahead. Yeah. So I think half point in July is nailed on, or sorry, quarter point in July, quarter point in September probably, and we'll see then. And this, of course, is to try and dampen inflation, which, which suggests that consumers are, are maybe losing the run of themselves. But yeah. it's not actually the case. I mean, the data no. doesn't support that in a lot of countries, no, does no, it? doesn't, no. And this is, this is the crux of the problem, really, they face. Normally, central bankers, I mean, the old thing about the central banker's job is to, is to take the punch bowl away when the party's getting started, the old cliche. The, the problem is there isn't really a party this time around at all. Inflation isn't being caused by people going mad and going out spending. It's been caused by supply-side problems, by higher energy prices, problems in supply chains, shortages all over the economy. Uh, that's, that's the cause of inflation. And, you know, in that context, using interest rates to control inflation is a, is yeah. a very blunt instrument. Okay. Um, so it's a tricky one for them. And um, while I think the short-term outlook is pretty clear now, I think come the autumn, it's not going to get any easier for them or for the Fed in the US. Now, some good news perhaps for Pascal Dunhu as, uh, and Michael McGrath as they look to frame the next budget. Still a few months away. But um, the uh, European Union has decided, or um, the uh, yeah, the European Union uh, has decided to uh, loosen the debt rules or, or to keep them as they were during the pandemic. And um, we have these uh, very strict deficit rules, which were loosened during the pandemic to allow countries to take on a lot more debt to support their economies yeah. uh, during lockdown, etc. And now they've decided to let that roll on for a bit longer. Yeah. So it gives a bit more flexibility to uh, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath potentially in yeah. the budget if they take it up, although they're conservative uh, individuals, sure. I think, as we know, so maybe they won't. But what's, what's your view on that? Yeah, I think, it was, I, I think it was coming all right and it would have been crazy in the light of the war and in the light of higher interest rates to expect governments to suddenly fall in line with the old rules. So I think that was expected. Uh, I think the question still is, what rules is Europe going to put in place in the long term? So what's what's the rules going to be in whatever, 2024, when uh, some kind of regime is going to have to be reinstated to oversee uh, member states' budgets? So, uh, and there's a lot of debate about that. So if they have more flex, if they can take on more debt, what do they spend it on? No shortage of thing to spend it on. Uh, but I think... That for now, I mean, there's, look, there's demands all over the place. Um, the health service, uh, housing, investment. Um, there's no shortage of places that they could spend the money. And, and, you know, businesses may need some supports as well, depending on how the war in Ukraine and particularly the energy situation uh, pans out. So I think they'll want to keep a bit in their locker for that. But equally, I think they will want to keep the public finances on track uh, in terms of the, the targets they've set for the next few years, which would leave, I suppose, fairly limited leeway. And the, the politics of that now are going to be interesting because there's been mumblings, obviously, over the years that Pascal Dunhu and, and more lately Michael McGrath have been too conservative, that it's hitting the opinion poll ratings, that it's given an open goal for Sinn Féin to shoot into. Um, so it's going to be interesting now coming up with the budget to see are they pushed into showing a bit more leeway 
uh, giving a bit more in terms of spending demands. Um, I suspect they'll try and they'll try and keep things tight because the growth outlook for, for next year is is just so uncertain. And the last thing the government is going to want to do is splash out a lot of money now and have to pull back next year and the year after as an election looms into view. So I think they'll try and play the long game, uh, but politics is by necessity a short game as well. Well, Charlie McCreevy's old trick was to keep it tight in the early years yeah. uh, and then as you're coming towards an election, yeah. uh, loosen the reins and spend yeah. like mad. Yeah. I suppose the problem is that uh, loosening the reins next year and the year after may be difficult if the growth rate eases off. And we've had such an amazing run of growth that you'd have to think it's going to at some stage. And just looking uh, in the last few days at the tax figures in the last few years, I mean, they're stunning. There's been a stunning increase in corporation tax and kind of, which which we've spoken about uh, uh, many times on, on, on this podcast and, and uh, in the, you know, in the Irish Times as well, but also a huge increase in income tax. It's just kind of extraordinary receipts. Uh, and you just wonder uh, on the balance of averages, how long can it go on for? Uh, because the longer it goes on, it's it's you know great for the Irish exchequer, uh, great for spending, gives a bit of gives a bit of leeway in the budget. Uh, but the more you spend on the basis of these revenues that may be transient, the more risk you build up, I suppose. Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break now. When I return, I'll be joined by Joe Brennan of the Irish Times, who's at the World Economic Forum in Davos. With increasing pressures, Ireland CEOs are working hard to navigate the rapidly evolving business landscape. The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report takes a deeper dive into the topics that are on the minds of Irish CEOs at the moment and, importantly, the issues that leaders should be paying attention to. Discover the key actions to consider as you seek to reshape the future of your organisation at ey.com slash ie slash CEO. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, the World Economic Forum returned as an in-person event this year after a pandemic hiatus. Joe Brennan is there for the Irish Times and he joins me now on the line. Joe Brennan, welcome from Davos, although you should be saying that to me, I guess. Tell us what's been going on. You're, it's back in person for the first time since early 2020. You were there uh, at that event in uh, January of that year, uh, if memory serves me correctly. How is Davos shaping up this year? compared with pre-pandemic levels? Yeah, look at um, uh, Davos uh, for the, the first 50 years of it uh, took place in, normally in, in, in January, normally against the kind of the scenic backdrop of snow-capped mountains and uh, people trying to navigate around uh, the, the, the highest kind of uh, town in, in, in Europe, which is usually kind of uh, uh, fairly deep in, in, in snow and ice. Uh, this time around, just even weather-wise, uh, when we arrived there over the weekend, uh, that the heat was, it was a, a high teens, it's kind of loud, now down to about low teens at the moment. Uh, there's been a few thunderstorms, uh, it was raining heavy there yesterday, so even even the kind of the scenic backdrop is, is, is very different to what uh, delegates, the, the usual 3,000 uh, business leaders, world leaders and uh, hangers-on and media uh, people covering uh, Davos would be used to. This time around, it's, I suppose it's it's well the numbers you know have held up relatively well. I think it's about two thousand five hundred people, uh, only down about five hundred people from what would ordinarily attend. Certainly, kind of the the the, the types of people. It's a it's a much lower key Davos uh, than it, ha- it would traditionally have been. It's probably easier to look at people who aren't here this year who would ordinarily be uh, rather than those who aren't. Um, 
unlike uh, in previous years, we would have had the US President Donald Trump would have been here twice back in 2018 and, and again back in 2020, where he kind of faced off against uh, Greta Thunberg, the, um, the Swedish uh, teenager climate activist. This year, we have no US president. Uh, the US president is in on an Asian tour. He's meeting uh, other kind of quad uh, meters, the, 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 the prime ministers of mm. Japan, uh, Australia and India. No Macron. Macron would not ordinarily be someone who'd be relied upon to uh, give a, a keynote address. No Boris Johnson and very few people from his his um, from his government. I think the most senior person from the UK is Jerry uh, Grimstone, who is uh, Johnson's uh, unpaid uh, investment uh, minister. Uh, no Xi Jinping, uh, the, 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 the Chinese uh, premier, who would have addressed the uh, Davos in the past. And, and and no um, uh, Indian uh, premier. Actually, if you look around, uh, only one uh, G7 uh, leader is actually here. And that's the German uh, Chancellor, uh, Olaf Scholz. Um, although we have a, a good smattering of kind of other kind of European leaders, certainly a lot of European leaders. Uh, you have the prime ministers of the likes of Greece, Bulgaria, Croatia, Belgium, even our own Taoiseach and our Taoiseach here as well. Of course, Joe, the star turn on day one, I guess, was Vladimir Zelensky, the uh, Ukraine uh, leader who did a virtual address and the message seemed to be more sanctions, please, towards Russia. Yeah, I think they're very, I think they're very grateful to have Zelensky here. Uh, it was a virtual address. Um, now he's, he's addressed a number of parliaments and, and has a Congress and, and also appeared before the Cannes Film Festival there last week. But I think the, the organisers of Davos were mightily uh, glad to have someone like Zelensky kind of headlining because of the lack of kind of uh, star power this year at, at, at Davos. And yes, he, look, he touched on, on, on themes. He hasn't really kind of veered off themes that he's touched on before. He was calling for maximum sanctions and that includes no oil. And obviously we have a, an issue with, in Europe in terms of agreeing a phasing out of oil at the moment. He's talking about sanctions against no uh, access to banks without exception and no IT. He said that, you know, if brute forces dominate, there's no need to have something like Davos here because brute forces uh, don't discuss, they kill. And he was asked at the very end by Klaus Schwab, the, the founder of Davos, if he had a message to to the leaders, business leaders um, here at Davos at this plenary session, session, what would he say to them? He says, look, I understand, you know, you all have your priorities and you each have things you have to deal with in your own countries, but he's fighting and Ukraine is fighting uh, not, to, not to, to, to lose the war. And he says, you know, he wished that you know, anyone that was in the room that when they wake up to actually, you know, have this feeling in their head, what could they do for, for, for Russia today? And certainly Ukraine has been the dominant theme uh, hanging over Dallas for, from, from day one. Yeah, Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission, she gave a speech yesterday, didn't she, in which she said that food was being weaponized as a result of the conflict in Ukraine. Yeah, uh, if you look at, look at the normal themes that you would have expected in, 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 and hard coming up in, in, in Davos, you have the likes of climate, uh, you have the likes of the economy, and then you likes. Uh, and this time round, the, a big theme that's kind of cropped up is the area of food, and obviously Ukraine. The whole war in Ukraine is feeding into that. Uh, if you just look at 
what's going on in the background. Obviously, food supplies, food chains would have been hit by uh, COVID. They continue to be hit by COVID. It's contributing to uh, shortfalls in foods in certain parts of the world and certainly food kind of uh, price inflation. And then you also have dr- droughts in, uh, certainly a drought in in in, in Eastern, uh, Eastern Africa and the Horn of Africa, the likes we haven't seen, likes of which we haven't seen in about four, four uh, decades. And that's leading to huge kind of uh, food su- uh, supply issues there. And actually, they're on the brink of, of, of famine. If you look at the likes of India, it's experiencing a, a massive heat wave. And India is kind of s- is storing up uh, wheat and, 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 and kind of limiting uh, exports of wheat itself. But against all that as well, you also have Russia and Russia blocking ports along the Black Sea uh, of Ukraine, blocking ports and, and blocking exports of wheat. Obviously, Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe blocking wheat exports and, and blocking sunflower seed exports. And that's only contributing to the whole uh, to the, the, the whole uh, food crisis that certainly became, become a, a dominant theme here in Davos as well. The UN uh, put out an estimate there during the week that uh, about 200 million people are now facing acute hunger. And that's a figure that's almost double what it was even five years ago. And on another panel, you had the CEO of Citigroup, Jane Fraser, and she was talking about obviously about macroeconomic issues, talking about the prospect of maybe Europe uh, entering recession this year and, and possibly uh, the US skirting with recession. But she's highlighted, you know, the, the big worry and the big wild card is food and hunger and the issues that could cause uh, if you have, she talked about maybe one and a half billion people uh, without actually having access to, to food, particularly in Africa, and the geopolitical consequences of that. And of course, leaders gathering Davos will know all too well of, of the cost, uh, issues around the cost and availability of, of food. I mean, bread was, you know, the start of, of many of an uprising, starting with uh, the French Revolution back in the 18th century, right up to uh, being a contributing factor to the Arab Spring about 10 years ago. Right. OK, well, let's hope we don't have that kind of uh, chaos uh, in the future. Um, tell us about the Irish involvement. Joe uh, Taoiseach Michal Martin was addressing a panel today. Yeah, the T-shirt was before a panel today. It was a panel about uh, Europe, European unity in the face of disruption, uh, global disruption. Um, He picked up on the themes of, I mean, the the panel generally discussed about how Europe, you know, which may have been lacking in terms of cohesiveness uh, back in the day, certainly around the, the financial crisis. If you look at the general approach taken by Europe to the financial crisis and to the bailing out of various countries, how you know, we had loads of very late night meetings and, and long delays in terms of getting decisions. This time around, Europe has shown itself to, you know, have acted fairly swiftly when it came to uh, COVID-19 and, and, and uh, agreeing on how to approach kind of uh, supports for businesses and governments. And obviously in the backdrop against that, you have the ECB being the, the central bank for the, the Eurozone being uh, a, a massive buyer of, of, of government bonds at the time when governments around Europe were, were borrowing heavily to, to fund these subsidies. Um, and again, the, the, the backdrop here was uh, Ukraine as well, just in terms of how quickly the European Union got together and actually unleashed uh, waves of sanctions, with very minimum fuss and, and, and very minimum delay. Obviously, the latest, the sixth sanction, Sixth round that's currently under discussion, which would involve the uh, which involve the, the the phasing out of, of oil in in the near term, is is, is coming up against an issue uh, with uh, with Hungary uh, against that exercising a veto against that, and the Taoiseach, just in talking about 
talking about uh, the Europe and the European Union, the teacher said one thing he was concerned about was just the slowness that is with regard to countries joining the EU, the EU's kind of slow approach to 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 uh, admitting. Uh, uh, enlargement countries, yeah, to, to enlargement into, into, into Europe. And he highlighted the issues of uh, North Macedonia and Albania. And they're being held up at the moment by an effective veto from, from Bulgaria, uh, largely because of kind of historic kind of issues between uh, Bulgaria and, uh, and North Macedonia. And he says it's just beyond comprehension that this can be going on at a time when Europe is, is, is trying to put up a face against, uh, put up a front against, uh, against Russia. Yeah, what about pure capitalism, Joe? Is there any any of that talk going on on the fringes about making money, about global recession, about I don't know, bankers' pay or something like that? No, I mean, look at yeah, of course, the the economic backdrop is is, is a major theme here as well. We're all they all are heading into into Davos with inflation running at at uh, rates we haven't seen in decades. We have central banks who had provided so much liquidity and injected trillions into global markets during COVID-19 and even before that, and are now beginning to try and normalise monetary policy and and, and trying to take away the punch bowl. Uh, And the big fear is, and we've seen that in the markets and partly in the reaction in in the rapid decline we've seen in, in, in global equity markets, and a spike in, 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 in international borrowing costs on the, the, the bond markets is a, a major concern about uh, the central banks moving too quickly in terms of raising rates and, and reducing their, their bond buying uh, programs. And, and uh, the, the issue of stagflation, obviously, is a major issue because as economies are, are slowing down, you still have inflation running at, in, certainly in, in Europe, at about 8%, 7 or 8%. Uh, the, the issue of, of, of stagflation is a, is, a, is a major issue and obviously it's, it's hitting the, the financial markets as well. Yeah. Is there much socialising going on, Joe, in the background? I just wonder, um, the, the IDA, I think, previously, or Ireland uh, previously, would have hosted some social gatherings, I guess, for foreign direct investors to try and woo them here. Yeah, I mean, it's probably not as, as, as social a Davos as we've seen in the past. But yes, we the, the IDA is holding its, its usual kind of dinner for kind of 50 or 60 uh, business leaders. Um, that is happening this evening. I think the Taoiseach and the IDA, Chief Executive Martin Shanahan, are presiding over that. And you'd expect kind of the, the great and good among uh, CEOs that would have uh, business, uh, international CEOs that have business in Ireland to be among that. And if you're looking at... CEOs that would have large uh, activities in Ireland that are here in Davos at the moment. You've got the CEOs of Pfizer, Bank of America and Intel. And you were speaking to some senior executives at Intel and they had some concerns about doing business in Ireland and, and the costs that are starting to come into play. Yeah, so Intel, um, its its main European manufacturing base in Europe at the moment is in Leakslip. Uh, and obviously most of the manufacturing is done in the States. The, the, the spike that we've seen in uh, energy prices in Europe is not something that they've seen to the same extent in the States. So Ireland, kind of the red flags are obviously kind of being waved in Ireland because of the extent that we have, of, of energy price inflation we've seen in Europe. And even within Europe, you see that Ireland, uh, Irish uh, energy price or electricity prices are running about 25, 26% higher than the European average last year, even before this crisis. Um, so the CEO was speaking to us and he was suggesting that the government should try and do something to try and tackle energy prices. 
it wasn't prescriptive, um, but we've seen in other countries, we've certainly seen in, in, in Portugal and in Spain that, that they've introduced uh, or they're introducing caps against uh, gas prices that are used for electricity generation. Um, they got a waiver from the European Commission for that. And the European Commission last week did highlight Ireland and uh, Cyprus as being two countries that are off the kind of grid, as it were, of, of, of European electricity, that, you know, it, it could be possible for Ireland to do something similar. I, I don't get the sense that there's anyone in government thinking along those lines just yet, but it certainly highlights an issue for US companies that would have Ireland as, as its base and just looking purely at, at energy costs, how, how difficult it is an issue for them. A couple of more days to run, Joe. What should we expect from the rest of the week? Yeah, so I suppose the big speech we're expecting uh, tomorrow, as the headliner tomorrow, is, uh, is Olaf Schultz. Um, he's no Angela Merkel, but Olaf Schultz will be the, the main speaker tomorrow on the final day of Davos. It, it ends around 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock tomorrow. And finally, Joe, I know you're in Davos, but I'm sure you're following events in Dublin very closely. And the competition watchdog here has cleared the way for Bank of Ireland to acquire the loans of up to €9 billion worth of loans from KBC Bank Ireland, which we know is exiting the Irish market, uh, subject to some certain conditions. What do you make of this? Yeah, I suppose um, this is the first of the uh, competition authorities' rulings on a wave of deals that are taking place uh, across the Irish banking sector as the three remaining banks, AIB, Bank of Ireland, Permanent TSB, look to carve up the uh, the loan books of uh, the, the parting banks, Ulster Bank and, and KBC. Yeah, and this one, uh, the, the Bank of Ireland planned acquisition of most of the loan book of KBC has, is getting through with minimal uh, conditions. Um, so I, I would imagine that this is kind of setting the pace for the other deals that we they will be waved through with with again with minimal conditions. Um, the one thing that's kind of jumped out at me is the condition that's been set by the Competition Authority that Bank of Ireland uh, make about one billion euros available to uh, the non-bank lenders, the mortgage lenders that are operating the market that are not banks, and they would rely on the capital markets. So what they would do is they would issue a load of loans, they bundle them together and they repackage them and they sell bonds against those loans in the market. Uh, and obviously the, the, the price of those bonds, the, the, the interest rates attached to those bonds have been increasing as uh, markets are expecting central banks to continue to, to, to raise interest rates or to raise interest rates and, and, and reduce uh, bond buying. So the rather than actually ask Bank of Ireland maybe to sell off some of its, maybe sell off some of the loans it was planning to sell, to, to buy to the likes of the non-banks, it's actually asked Bank of Ireland to provide about $1 billion to to to, uh, to to buy bonds from these non-banks, the likes of ICS uh, mortgages, uh, which is active in, in, in the mortgage market. And the odd thing about that is that will only effectively increase the uh, exposure of the perverse thing is that it'll only increase the exposure of Bank of Ireland to the mortgage market because it's effectively buying bonds backed by by mortgages from a non-bank lender. Joe, how will those bonds operate and how will Bank of Ireland divvy up the money between the non-bank lenders? Yeah, so what they would do is basically they issue the bonds um, Finance Ireland would make a obviously make a cut on the original loan. It would repackage and sell on those loans as a pool to bond investors, and they would take that money and they may they make a difference on the spread there on that. And basically, the, the likes of uh, of the bond buyers, which would include Bank of Ireland at this stage, 
they'll receive a regular uh, interest rate uh, that will be set by the market when the when the bonds are being sold. They'll receive a, a regular interest payment, which is basically backed by income coming from the actual mortgage themselves. Now, it's unclear um, as to whether Bank of Ireland would, uh, to what extent, if, if, if the likes of Dillas or ICS were, were, were selling bonds in the market, does Bank of Ireland commit to buying a certain portion of that? Or is it a kind of a, a backguard kind of a buyer of bonds uh, in the event that other uh, market participants don't, uh, don't buy those bonds? OK, Joe Brennan, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Cliff Taylor and Joe Brennan. The show was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. And happy to say that the Irish Times has had something of a digital upgrade. So we now have a new website and app. Check it out if you haven't already downloaded them. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.